Good morning. The scripture reading can be found in Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your, in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is God's word. Thank you, Erica. Um, I tried my best to beat Jonathan's length of scripture last week, if you remember how long that was. But I fell short, and uh, as we're going through these Old Testament narratives, it's really hard to narrow it down. 
Um, And today, we are looking at the book of Deuteronomy and really focusing on love the Lord. And the word Deuteronomy, the the name of the book means second giving of the law. Um, And my name is Jeff Skipper. I'm the church planning apprentice here at Redeemer. If you're new here and you don't know me, uh, I'm honored to be able to share this morning. Um, But today, we're concluding part four of the wilderness section of the story of God series as we've been working through the history of the Old Testament. And so just to remind you, if you haven't been with us, uh, Israel has been set apart by God. They've been uh, miraculously delivered uh, and s- from slavery in Egypt, and now they've been wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Uh, two weeks ago, Drew spoke about the tabernacle, and this was God on the move with his people, and he was leading them to the promised land, and he was organizing their life in worship. And then last week, Jonathan spoke about the spies, and they were faithless, all but Caleb and Joshua. Uh, They went up to spy out the land. God told them to go take the land. They brought back a bad report. Uh, They were fearful. Uh, God told them not to go, and then they were presumptuous, and they went up without God. They were defeated, and they were judged. And so now they have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Can you imagine? So here we are, 40 years after God has rescued Israel and set them apart to use as his witnesses to the nations, and now we're on this plot of land called the Plains of Moab, and we are the the people of Israel, they are poised to enter into the Promised Land 40 years later. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. We have Moses giving a series of speeches before he dies. And, And you know, when you're about to die, you get right to the point, right? There's not a lot of time for casual talk. All the, like, really important stuff comes out. And that's what Moses is doing here. But he's addressing the second generation. He's talking to the kids who grew up in the 40 years of the wilderness. Because their parents, the first generation, had died because of their disobedience and they tested God. And now Moses is motivating these kids, the second generation, to obey the covenant that God made with them. And he starts reciting their history. He tells them about what God has done and how he's done so many great works on their behalf. I mean, I really like ancestry and genealogy and finding out where I'm from and stuff. And when I do that, I usually go sit down with my grandma or my grandpa and talk to them. Uh, Unfortunately, I can't seem to get much past Eloise, like two generations back. Uh, That's kind of where I stop. Um, uh, But I love listening to like how things have happened and why it helps explain who I am and, and the reason I am where I am and so on. And so that's what this scene really is in Deuteronomy. This is old like Grandpa Moses talking to his young grandchildren about everything that's happened to bring them to this point and why everything has happened the way that they have. And so old Moses is basically telling them, look, God's done some amazing things to bring you here. He's graciously chosen you, and he delivered you. He's made promises to you. He desires to bless you. He loves you. So obey him. And so he teaches this people about the covenant that God made with their fathers and its stipulation. So basically he's saying, this is what God expects of you as his people. And we just read that. Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 3 says, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord your God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. So Moses is saying, hey, this wasn't just for your parents, it's for you too. I could stop right there and we could elaborate and and say the same goes for children in here right now. 
right? I mean, you have to own your faith for yourself. Uh, You can't rely on your family history or the faith of your parents. Our faith is a passed down faith, but it's not a borrowed faith. Are you with me? And that's what Moses is telling the second generation. This is for you, and you have to own this. And so in chapter 5, Moses recollects the Ten Commandments. He goes over those. And then chapter 6, through the rest of the book, he talks about Israel's future and what it's going to look like uh, based on whether they obey or not. He's giving them the law for a second time to this new generation. And we're going to see that the heart of this covenant, the heart of the law, of everything that Moses is telling them and what God expects of them is this basic stipulation to love the Lord with all they have. And if they'll just do that, then everything else will follow. The rest of the law just fleshes out that main thing, to love the Lord with all you have. And so we're going to look at three things. First is the pinnacle of the law. You can follow in your worship folder. Secondly, the problem. And then finally, the promise and the power to save and obey. So the pinnacle of the law, if you look uh, in that passage uh, at verse 4 of chapter 6, this statement is the heart of Judaism. I mean, this was and still is the main confession of faith for Jews. It's commonly known as the Shema. You you, you may have heard of that before. That's the Hebrew word for hear, right? Because verse 4 starts with the word in English, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this was and is the the most well-known passage for Jews. They repeat this twice daily. They teach it to their children to say before they go to bed. They would copy it onto little pieces of parchment, and they'd put it in little boxes, little leather boxes called phylacteries, and they'd they'd put it on their forehead. You can, like, see pictures of it, look it up online. They tie it on their arms. They put it on their doorposts. You can see how central this is to their life and faith. My wife spent some time in Israel, and she told me how obviously central uh, the Shema was to their life and worship. She told me about how Israeli pilots, when they've been shot down in battle, there's actually recordings of them reciting the Shema as they're going down. So it's very central to them. And in Hebrew, it's only four words. So I'll spare you my attempt to to speak the Hebrew. uh, But literally, in English, it's basically saying, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. And it's a statement of monotheism and exclusivity. So that's just a fancy way of saying there's one God and there is, there is no other. That all of one's attention and affection and worship are due to the Lord alone. Because you see, the dominant belief at the time was that there were many different gods. Right? There was a sea god and there was like a mountain god. And it just depended on the region or country that you were in. Now some of you may say, well, that, that sounds silly. But really, we're no different today. Because depending on who you talk to, God is different, right? Depending on the person you talk to, because we seem to construct our own ideas about who God is and what he's like, and that that is specifically meaningful to us. So really, there's kind of like, it's kind of the same today, depending on who you talk to. There's many gods. But the Shema is God saying, no, you don't construct me, I construct you. Right? If you want to know me, you have to know me as I've revealed myself, not how you make me out to be. So God is one, and he is who he is, and not who we decide who he is. And this passage is also calling for radical loyalty. He's the only God. So immediately, the question that meets us today is, have we made God the main thing in our lives? 
Are we, are we radically loyal to him alone because he's preeminently worthy or have we replaced him with something else? Because you see, this God, Yahweh, the Lord says, I'm not playing second fiddle to anybody. I'm not a backup plan. I'm not an add-on. I'm not just one option among many for you to get advice from. I mean, the very first commandment we find in Deuteronomy 5, 7 says, you shall have no other gods before me. And that word before also means besides. So you, you should have no other gods besides me. So the Shema starts out of this statement of the exclusivity of God, that he's one and, and he's the only one and there's no other God. And it's with that foundational statement that Moses gets this second generation's attention and he launches into fleshing out the law throughout the, the rest of the book. Now this week as I spent time reading the book of Deuteronomy, there was a phrase that just jumped off the page to me. And the phrase was, be careful. I did a basic word search, and 26 times in the book of Deuteronomy, the phrase, be careful, is used. And about 25 of those times, it's followed by something like, to do these commandments. So the book of Deuteronomy is like a broken record. It just jumps off the page over and over again. As you read it, you just see, be careful to do these commandments. Be careful to do these commandments. And totally, in the book of Deuteronomy, in different wordage, God commands us to do what he says to do about 50 different times. So God is saying, these are my ways, and these are the tracks on which I intend humanity to run on in order for life to work best. So it's just very clear, if you spend some time in the book of Deuteronomy, that we are to be very careful to obey God. But what's the motivation to do so, right? I mean, that's probably a question that some people may be thinking, or surely if you told this to some people, they would probably say, why? And for that, we have to look at the context of this passage, and, and what is the context in which the law is given? Now, I, we could probably list plenty of reasons why God should be obeyed, right? I mean, we could say, he's God, you're not, so obey him. I mean, that's pretty simple, but that would probably suffice. Sounds like reason enough for me. He's the creator, you are the creature, so obey. But then we'd only be obeying because we have to, not because we want to. And I don't know about you, but I rarely want to do something with someone if they're only doing it because they have to. It really takes all the joy and delight out of it for me, right? I want them to want to as well. So one of the most important things we have to establish right now, and if you miss this, you'll miss the whole uh, the, the main theme of the entire Bible, okay, uh, but especially the point of the law, that although the law did call for perfect obedience, the context in which it was given was one of grace. God had just rescued and saved this people, Israel, from Egypt, and he brings them out to this mountain called Sinai, and he gives them to the law. So their obedience to the law was to be lived out as a response to God's saving initiative, Right? Their obedience is to be a response to what God has already done for them. So God is saying, I love you, therefore obey. He's not saying, if you obey, I will love you. Do you see the difference there? They both involve obedience, but there's a world of difference between the two. And if you've been a church person for all of your life, or a religious person for all of your life, and you've never found rest in the Christian faith, it's because you've probably lived by, if I obey, God will love me. Anybody relate to that? And you'll never find rest that way because obedience matters, but it is to flow from a thankful heart and it is to be a response to the love of God. 
That's the context in which the law is given. It's the same for us, right? We read 1 John 4, 19. It says, we love because, what? He first loved us, right? Our love for God and others, our obedience to walk in his commandments is just to be a response to the love that we've been shown by God. And so Israel is just to do the same thing. But when we look at the whole law, right, when you step back and you look at the entire law, it's kind of overwhelming. I mean, there's a lot of laws, right? Have you ever read the Torah, right, the first five books of the Bible where the laws laid out? There's a lot of laws, and they're pretty tough to do. And God calls for perfect obedience, or there would be consequences. So wouldn't it be nice if we could just take all these laws and narrow it down to maybe like one or two lines for, for this morning? Because I find summaries very helpful. I don't know about you. So something we can shoot for and that all of the other details would just fall into place and take care of themselves. Well, I'm glad you asked. We have that. Deuteronomy 6.5. The Shema continues. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, the word heart in Hebrew is the seat of the mind and the will. It is the the center of you. It is the, the core of who you are. And the word for soul, the closest thing we have is probably what we would call emotion. And might is is force or strength. But listen, these are not to be divided up into exclusive different categories. The point that is trying to be conveyed here is that they overlap to show the totality of the person. Together they mean that one is to love God with his whole being. So, So the Shema begins by telling us that the Lord is your God alone, there's no other, and you are to love him with all you got. Your whole life is to be soaked with love for God. Now, what does that look like? If you look in in verse 6 of chapter 6 in your worship folder, you will see, I'm going to read a few verses. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you see how comprehensive that language is? That every part of the day, all of your relationships, every area is covered from when you wake up to your conversation, when you're sitting down to have breakfast, when you go out on a walk, your daily life, your business life, when you lie down. I mean, just these few verses, all of life is covered. The only other thing that I could think of, the only other thing that we do in all of these situations that I could think of was breathing. I mean, the ways of God, our living out our love for God is to be like breathing. Now, Jesus touches on this passage in Matthew 22. An expert of the law comes up to him. He says, hey, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And the Pharisees did this. They divided the law up into really light laws. The, uh, we can kind of mess around with these. And then the really heavy laws, the most important ones. And he says, Jesus, which one's the greatest one? And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So Jesus is saying that Deuteronomy 6.5 is the greatest commandment. And then he says, the second is like it. You shall love, the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting a verse from Leviticus. And then he adds this. He says, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. He says, the rest is just details. If you are doing the great one, then you are doing the rest. 
So that, that sounds easy enough, right? I could have saved us a bunch of time this morning. That's the main thing. Go do it. We can go eat an early lunch or brunch and just enjoy our Sunday. Well, no. There's a problem. We need something from God in order to be able to do this. So I ask you, how have you done in obeying the great commandment? How have we done in obeying the great commandment? Let me set up a scenario here. Let's say you get past the Ten Commandments, right? And you claim perfection, which, of course, none of us have. Every day we break the first commandment. We allow competitors uh, to God's place of being first in our life. But just go along with me. Let's say you get past the Ten Commandments, right? And then you go to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he enlarges upon those Ten Commandments, and he really gets to the heart of those commandments. So you say, well, I've never hated anyone in my heart, so I haven't broken the commandment to do not murder. And I have not lusted after anyone, so I've never committed the the commandment to do not commit adultery. So let's say you've been spectacular at not doing bad things. What about the great commandment? You see, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might takes everything up a notch, right? It's no longer about not doing these bad things, but it's about have you not done the best thing? Have you loved God with all your heart, soul, and might? Have you, has God been the main thing, the center of your affections, or have you allowed competitors to God's throne in your life? Have, have you tried to do this? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. I get some amens, I think, right there. The main thing we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues is that we fail. Surely no one in this room would stand up and say, I claim complete perfection in this area of loving God this way. And I can think of two reasons. There's plenty of reasons, surely. But two reasons why we failed at obeying the great commandment. One is because we've compartmentalized God. And secondly, because we've been careless, not careful to obey. So first, we've compartmentalized God. We have assigned God a time and a place in our lives, not all times and all places. We've compartmentalized him to Sunday morning service or just one small area of our lives. But the Shema calls for absolute loyalty and total love for God. And it basically says that we are to love God, that God is for all times and all places, not just a place and a time. And Paul says this in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. So he says, whatever you do, he's saying there is no compartment for love of God. It covers all of life, just like Deuteronomy just showed us. So our first problem is we have sectioned God off, compartmentalized him to just one area of our lives. Reason number two is that we have not been careful, but we've been careless. You remember a few minutes ago I mentioned that in the book of Deuteronomy, be careful. Be careful over and over and over again to obey God and walk in his ways. And I tried to spend some time thinking of what, like what I'm careful with, what, like when I'm careful, and what makes me careful. And I realized I'm usually careful with things that I value, and I'm usually careful when the stakes are really high. Right? With something I value and when the stakes are high. And I saw both of these things come together back in December. Uh, we took our family out to San Antonio to see Marissa's grandma because our, our little boys, we have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. They, the youngest had never seen her, and the three-year-old spent very limited amount of time with her. So we went out there to San Antonio for a week. And she lives out in the hill country of San Antonio, a really pretty place called 
Canyon Lake, small place, and there's a big, huge, beautiful lake there. And so one day while we were there, we went out to the lake to see it and to to walk around, and it's kind of down in like a canyon. You're up really high, and you're looking down at it, and and there's this beautiful, big, huge dam. And so we walk out on this ridge type of area that was really steep with rocks. And, And you could look down, and you could see the big rocks and their sharp edges, and the ground was basically gravel that, that we were walking on. We could slip pretty easily, so um, I guess I'm exposing my bad parenting now. I took my one- and three-year-old out there in this situation. Um, that's not the point of this illustration, but, so forget that. Um, but listen, because the stakes were high, who knows what could have happened if we had slipped, right? Because the stakes were high, I was very careful to stay on the path. And I was also careful to hold my son's hand very tightly because he's incredibly valuable to me. And so when you mix those two things together, that the stakes were really high and the high value I put on my children, it was a recipe for me to be very careful. Now, is that the way we walk with God? And if not, maybe we have a value problem. Maybe we don't value God in his ways as we should. Or maybe we misunderstand how high the stakes are, like Israel did. Instead of being careful, we've been very careless. A couple of months ago, I had the opportunity to upgrade to the uh, much-desired iPhone 5, right? I went and upgraded to the iPhone 5, and I was excited, and I bought it, and they offered me the, like, $130 super waterproof case. Negative. That's not happening, right? I got the $30 hard shell case. I wasn't going to buy the $130, uh, you know, uh, waterproof case. And so a few days later, I get home, and and I made this big, huge cup of water, ice water in one of those Tervis cups, you know, the clear cups, right, the tallest one they make, right, filled it up with ice, water, good to go, walk in the living room, sat down to watch a cartoon with Jonathan, who is my three-year-old. And you know what kids do, parents, right, right when you sit down, I want juice, I mean, right when you sit down. At least that's what my kids say. They want something right when I said, okay, Jonathan. So I go in the kitchen, and I get him juice, and I come out of the kitchen, and I turn the corner, and I look across the house, and you're probably already ahead of me here. Jonathan is perched over the side of the couch, hovering, dangling my iPhone 5 over my big, huge glass of water. I kid you not, and he's looking me right in the eyes. I come out of the kitchen, and I turn, and I just stop, and this is what he's doing. And I just, I, everything went in slow motion from that point. I mean, I, I, I said, no. And I, this is, I mean, this is how I remember it in my head. I'm running, and I'm running like this, and I'm going, no. And I jumped over the couch. I kid you not, my couch is right there. I just got it like a couple of days. I just hurdled that couch, Olympic style. And he just looks me right in the eyes, and he goes. <laughs> he, I really believe he knew what he was doing. And my phone just goes boom, to the bottom of that cup. And it's clear, so I can even see it, which makes it worse, right? I learned that day that Jonathan does not value iPhone 5s, right? Just like I didn't value the super waterproof case that I should have got, he was careless, I was careless. We've treated God's commandments like a three-year-old treats an iPhone 5. Just drop it. Instead of being careful to love, trust, and obey, as God stresses us to do, we've been careless. And again, this goes back to the value, how much value we ascribe to God and our understanding of how high the stakes really are. 
Because if we truly valued God, then we would value His commandments and walk in them. Now, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the people of God could not obey perfectly. One of the reasons the law was given was to show them that they couldn't live up to God's standards and to drive them to God's grace, to show them that the power was not within them. And Moses knew this as he spoke to Israel. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 31, it says, The Lord said to Moses, They will turn to other gods and serve them. This is what he says, right? Verse 20 of chapter 31. They will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. This is a prophecy that Israel would fail, that they wouldn't be careful to walk in God's ways or love him with all of their hearts, that they would be faithless. So ultimately what we have here is a heart problem. Because if we fast forward about 700 to 900 years, we see that both Israel and Judah uh, are, are sent into exile because of their disobedience. They suffer because they didn't love God the way that they were called to love him. And in verse 15, which is in your worship folder of chapter 6, it says that if they went after other gods, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you from off the face of the earth. That's a pretty big deal, right? And so we too have failed in loving God in this way. So we have, we have a twofold problem. One is, we've been disobedient, we've been guilty, we too are under God's judgment for going after other gods, for attempting to replace him who is alone, preeminent and worthy as the Shema begins, right? And secondly, we can't keep the law apart from God doing a work in us. I mean, we're broken. Our problem is not that we break things, but that we, at our core, at our center, are broken, that we have bad hearts. That all of our lack of compassion and love for self and defensiveness and selfishness and lack of love for God is evidence that we have a core heart problem. That we're not righteous, but we're sinners. And so, in light of that, we have a twofold need. One, we need power from outside of ourselves to come and save us from that judgment. And secondly, we need the power to obey and love God. And so that leads us to the promise and the power to save and obey. As you go through the Old Testament, there are hints and shadows and promises that God would send a gift that would come and empower us to do this. And there's one right there in Deuteronomy of chapter 30. The Lord says, you'll be driven away by the nations and scattered, but I will restore you. I'll have compassion on you. I'm going to gather you back again. And then it goes on to say this, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children so that... You will love the Lord with all, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. I'm going to do something to your heart so that you can obey Deuteronomy 6 5, the greatest commandment. We need heart surgery. We need a change. That's what Deuteronomy 30 is telling us. Uh, Stay with me, a couple more Old Testament passages. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, basically says the power to change that Deuteronomy 30 talked about, the power to change will come. Verse 31 of chapter 31 says, Behold, the days are coming coming when I will make a new covenant with Israel. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers that they broke when I rescued them when they come out of Egypt. Not like that covenant that they broke. But this one, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The law of God actually written on our hearts, actually inside of us. And then Ezekiel 36, probably the most forward one that just says it, right? Verse 26, it's in your worship folder, the last little chunk there. 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The promise of a new heart and a new spirit within the people of God to empower them to love and obey God the way he has called us to do. And did you catch those two words right there in verse 27? I'll cause you to be careful to obey me. The same exact phrase used time and time again in Deuteronomy, where we failed, where Israel failed. He said, I'm going to cause you to do that. I'll cause you to be careful with a new heart and a new spirit. This is the promise of the power that we need in order to love the Lord our God with our whole being. So we know what we need. The the question is, how do we get it? How do we get it? When we step back and we look at the fullness of the scope of God's story, of making things right again, of redemption, we see that this power is given through what's called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because remember a minute ago I said we have a twofold problem, right? To be saved from judgment and to be empowered to obey. They are both solved in the gospel. And they are received and applied to your heart by faith in the gospel. If you've been reading your community Bible reading, you just read Hebrews 9 a few days ago. And and it it was also our assurance of pardon this this morning. And in verse 15, it says, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. That's the one I just mentioned from Jeremiah 31. God said, I'm going to create and send the power to change. And Hebrews is saying, here it is. Here's the new covenant. In this new covenant is the promise of eternal life, that Jesus died to redeem us, Because we broke the law because of our failure to fully obey. In other words, listen, he took the judgment for our failure to love God with all of our heart, soul, and might upon himself. It says he was offered as a sacrifice for our sins. Right? So the ultimate judgment that was threatened to come upon Israel for failing to love the Lord with all of their hearts actually came down upon Jesus. That that verse, verse 15 in chapter 6, on the cross is actually when we see the anger of the Lord kindled. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Jesus, and he was destroyed. That's good news for us, the guilty ones. That there is hope for sinners through the work of Jesus Christ, and by faith in him, you can be saved. Only through faith in him. Now, that is negatively taking away our judgment, but positively, Jesus also relived Israel's story. I don't have time to tell you how amazing it is, how Jesus follows the pattern of Israel's story, right? If you've ever went over that. But let's just say that he was obedient to God's law, unlike Israel. In every area where Israel failed, in every area where we have failed, Jesus succeeded. Hebrews tells us that in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, as we have been, yet without sin. He succeeded in walking in the ways of God where we failed. So in him, we're not only forgiven, not only is our judgment taken away, but we are righteous. That righteousness is credited to us, put on our account. And we see this whole story of the promise come to full, we see it come full circle in Galatians 4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, to redeem us from the law, those who were under the law, to buy them back, those who were condemned by the law because they failed to love God fully, 
That's why he was sent. That's what Galatians 4 tells us. So that we might be adopted as sons. And here, here you go. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because of the work of Jesus, the Spirit is sent into our hearts. God has saved us in Jesus Christ, and, and, and he sends his Spirit into our hearts that changes our desires and enables us to respond in loving obedience to his work of grace for us. A heart that experiences the grace of the gospel, of what's giving in Jesus, responds and loves for God and obeys God. A heart that loves God, obeys God. One way that you know you have the Spirit in you is that you want to obey God. Not that you have to, but because you see what he has done for you and you want to obey God. And so a few things as I I close... If you don't know Jesus as your Lord, if you do not recognize him as your Lord, you need to be reconciled with God through his work, by by turning from your sin and by placing your faith in him. And therein you will receive the Spirit of God and you will become to be changed. You will will start to desire the things that God desires. Uh, My next question to those who are Christians is this, where have you compartmentalized God? Right? I mean, in what areas of your life have you not let him in? Where have you assigned him for only specific times and specific places in your life? Does your financial life reflect love for God? Does your thought life reflect love for God? All areas. What about your relationships? How would those look different if love for God was your top priority in all times and all places? And I would be remiss to look over uh, what this scripture says to parents. This could be a sermon in and of itself, itself, but parents, how would your your relationship with your children look different if you taught them the ways of God diligently? If you read verse 7, that's what it says we're to do. And and if you taught them, verses 21 through 24, it says your children are going to come up and ask you things about this. Verses 21 through 24, there's amazing implications for discipleship and raising your children to walk in the ways of the Lord. So when they come and ask you, what's this all about? Are you going to have the answer for them to tell them what God has done? And verse 6 is the answer. In order to do that, verse 6 says, you have to have these words upon your heart, right? We have to be walking in his way to lead our children and the next generation in his way. They have to be on our hearts. Finally, can you imagine how different our relationships, our families, our businesses, our churches, and our city would look if we loved God in every area of our lives at all times and all places? If that was our top priority. If every situation that we encountered, the question that we brought to the table was, because of what God has done for me in the work of Jesus Christ, how can I love God in this situation or area of my life? So as I close, uh, I thought of Christians who may be mired in sin, who are backslidden in sin. You are a Christian, but you are just outright failing to be careful and ignoring to be careful to walk in the ways of God. At one time you, you were, but now you're not. I encourage you to look to the work of God on your behalf in the gospel. Look at what God demands of you and look at what you deserve and ultimately what God has done for you by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and your heart will be warmed. And secondly, are you grieving the Holy Spirit, the gift that God has given you? Are you grieving that? Are you engaging in the means that God has given you to grow? Like his word, 
and prayer and coming to the Lord's table and, and, and spending time in Christian community? Are you completely neglecting those things and sin is very comfortable to you right now? And, and, and just hear me, that complacency is very dangerous. So I encourage you, who, who you are a Christian, but you're not being careful to walk in God's ways, to fan into flame the gift that God has given you in His Spirit by His means of grace, by being engaged in Christian community, in His Word, to, to wake from your slumber of sin and walk in the ways of the Lord. And finally, to the Christian who is weary, because you constantly fail to do this. And you, you are trying to do this. And you carry a heavy burden because you so often fail to love God this way. Because I get emotional because that's me. Look to the gospel. That there is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. To rest in his work for you because the enemy wants you more focused on your performance than what Jesus Christ has done for you. And so flee from that deadly mindset and rest in the words of Jesus that it is finished. And when you see that work of grace on your behalf, you will respond in obedience. And you will want to respond in obedience. Again, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ promises the power to save and also the power to live this way, to love him with all of your heart, soul, and might in every area of your life. So listen, rest in the work of Jesus for you, and out of that deep soul rest that you have, respond in loving obedience to the only God, the God who saves. Will you join me as I pray this prayer written by John Stott? It's very short, but it kind of captured my heart in these truths. Will you pray with me? We thank you... Heavenly Father, that you have not left us to grope in the darkness without any light to show us the way. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we thank you that you have given us in the Holy Spirit an indwelling comforter and strengthener who writes your law in our hearts and enables us to love and to obey it. Grant us in increasing measure the fullness of the Spirit that we may live a life that is pleasing in your holy sight. For the glory of your great name. Amen. Well, uh, the promise of the gospel is that if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has sent his spirit into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, uh, changing your desires, enabling you to be confident in your salvation, and then walk in a way that is pleasing unto him. And when you fail, you know that there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And so, uh, receive this benediction as I raise my hands. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in his peace. Amen.